This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Our guest today, Chelsea Manning, is likely somebody you've heard of, regarded as a hero by many and a traitor by others. In 2010, while working as an Army intelligence analyst in Iraq, she provided hundreds of thousands of military and diplomatic records to WikiLeaks in what's regarded as the largest leak of classified records in history. After she was convicted in a military court-martial in 2013, she declared her gender identity as a woman and began to transition. Manning was sentenced to 35 years in prison, but was released after seven years when President Obama commuted her sentence. She was later imprisoned again on a civil contempt charge for refusing to testify in a grand jury investigation of WikiLeaks, but was released in 2020. Manning has written a new memoir about her difficult childhood, her long struggle with gender dysphoria, her entry into the Army, and the events that landed her in prison. She writes that when she joined the Army, she wanted to go to Iraq and was committed to the Army's mission, but she became disillusioned with what she saw and regards her decision to leak classified documents as a matter of principle. Chelsea Manning now describes herself as a transparency activist and politician. She ran for U.S. Senate in Maryland in 2018. She works as a security consultant and expert in data science and machine learning. Her new book is readme.txt, a memoir. Chelsea Manning, welcome to Fresh Air. Hey, how's it going? Doing well. Um, You know, a lot of people who don't live highly publicized lives become famous suddenly. And you became famous while you were in prison and had no control or even knowledge of the publicity around you. I mean, you were characterized by other people, many of whom had agendas. And we'll we'll talk about this later. But I wonder if that's why you wanted to tell your own story in this book. Uh, you've got that right, you know, uh, throughout my life. Uh, especially over the last decade or so, I've kind of lost control of how uh, I'm presented to the world. Um, So I really came to want to write, uh, write my version of events, write my story, you know, tell things from my perspective, because I think it's kind of gotten lost in a lot of people projecting their sort of ideals or uh, their fears or their anxieties onto me or whatever it is, you know, whereas I'm just kind of me, right? All right. Well, let's talk about you. Um, and let's begin where you do in, in your childhood. You grew up in Crescent, Oklahoma. Your dad met your mom in Wales, so she had family there. Um, both your parents were heavy drinkers, and that can affect families in lots of ways. Uh, what did it mean for you and your older sister, Casey? Uh, so my my family... Uh, has a history with alcohol, certainly. Um, my parents, uh, you know, they they struggled with alcohol increasingly as I was getting older. So it was a little, it was a little less bad in my younger years, and then as I got uh, a little bit older, it, it progressively got worse for them. I would say that my sister kind of took up the the mantle of uh, being the sort of leader of the household eventually, you know, especially for, from my perspective, you know, she was the one who would make sure that I went to school. You know, she was the one who would look out for me. Um, you know, whenever my, whenever my parents weren't there. Uh, you were raised as a boy. Um, when did you become aware that you felt you weren't? Sure. Uh, I, I always figured that I was trans. I mean, well, 
I didn't have the language to describe my experience. I certainly knew something was different about me. And, uh, you know, in a very strict sort of gender construct that exists in a place like central Oklahoma in the, in the 1990s, you know, there really wasn't an alternative, but I always knew that there was something different about me. Um, and my family noticed it too. Like it was just a very marked difference about me and my personality and my sort of interests that, um, you know, was something that made me stand out. And how did your parents react to it when they noticed it? Uh, well, my father was never happy with it. So my father obviously was very upset with me um, whenever I, you know, because like I, you know, I was a, I was a nerdy kind of athletic, but small, um, you know, kid who, uh, you know, was, was maybe a bit, maybe a bit more on the femme side, um, you know, and sort of leaned towards things or, or, you know, I certainly admired my sister and I wanted to be like my sister because she was the older uh, sibling. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time wanting to be just like my sister, like, you know, like in, in almost every way. <laughs> you were a smart kid. You won science fairs and I did. Dis discovered computers early in the PC world. Um, what effect did that have on your life and your experience? You really got into it, didn't you? Sure. Um, you know, central Oklahoma being kind of hostile to me in general um, and feeling kind of uncomfortable as a kid. Um, you know, uh, the internet um, was very new. It was very sort of frontier in that time frame. Well, the first time I was on the internet was, it was so early that, you know, nothing was on it, right? It was like the, it was like 1993, 1994. So, you know, like it was literally just like, you know, not even companies like had their, had their own homepage that looked any better than, uh, than a MySpace and, you know, the mid 2000s. So later on, towards the end of the 90s, um, I started to notice the sort of communities that uh, were forming and, uh, and um, you know, a mixture of video gaming, a mixture of a lot of interest in music, uh, especially electronic music. So it was a whole, whole nother world you could inhabit and you were good, you learned to code, right? This is sort of uh, an early start on, on later directions, I guess. Um, right. Your parents split when you were 13, and your mom moved back to Wales, took you with her, and those that's where you finished school, I guess. Not Some not easy years, as you described them. And then after graduating high school, you write that you came out as gay on MySpace. You knew that you felt an attraction to men. How did you understand your sexuality and gender identity then? You know, uh, fluid. It's It's been complicated, right? So... As a young person, I think it was very confusing, right? You know, so it was it was a it was a time in which it was always this sort of either or, you know, or or it, it, even earlier, like in Oklahoma, it was just it was just like you are attracted to the opposite sex, right? Yeah, you know, that's it. Like, um, so you know, I I think that finally, sort of experimenting and figuring out who I am uh, in my late teens. Um, you know, uh, I, I also leaned again on the internet to sort of explore this. Um, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I certainly, I certainly would have identified in the mid 2000s as, as, uh, as a gay guy. But, um, you know, like, uh, I also got the sense that, that that wasn't quite where I was going to land, right? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I mean, um, you describe your gender dysphoria as as you move through this story of going into the army and eventually leaking the documents and then dealing with the court martial and how would you describe what it feels like 
um, the dysphoria or what it felt like? So I, I put it in the book that um, it's very similar to having a toothache that doesn't go away. You know, it's like, you know, if you don't do anything about it, if you don't go see a dentist, you know, it does just sort of gets worse and worse and worse as well. You get the sense of like, oh, there's something there's something not quite right. And then you, you know, if you don't see treatment for it, it just gets worse, right? You write that when you were enlisting in the army, you actually wanted to go to Iraq to experience the fight firsthand, be there, smell it, even risk your life. Tell us a little more about this. Was this a patriotic sentiment, a life experience thing? I think it was me wanting to, me wanting to feel alive almost. You know, I didn't feel like I had, as a teenager and as I was reaching my sort of young adult years, I, I had no sense of purpose or sense of identity. You know, it was just sort of lost and floating. And uh, I was really hoping that, you know, the army and my job would would provide that for me. So I think that I really leaned into it, not having really anything else. Right. And the recruiters were excited to get somebody walking in because they, they needed needed new troops then. You became an Army intelligence analyst and you were deployed to Iraq in 2009. This is when it was a surge. And, you know, for, for people whose memories are fuzzy, this the war had been going on now for six years. And the invasion was 2003 and it was going badly. I mean, there was incredible civil strife in the country. You were assigned to Forward Operating Base Hammer, which was just outside of Baghdad. You you were part of the intelligence unit, but you were your work was directly related to assisting the US troops and their commanders there, right? Give us Correct. a sense a sense of what you did and it, how it fit in to the military's mission there. Okay, so uh, as an intelligence analyst, we have a very strange role uh, in the military. It's very bottom up. Commanders come and ask us questions and they ask for frank answers and they want, you know, so you have a, a more, for a junior enlisted person especially, um, yeah, which is unusual. It's it's unusual but not unheard of for a junior enlisted person to interface directly with a, a staff officer, which is somebody who works directly for the commander or uh, an actual commanding officer. And a role is essentially to uh, build products, um, charts, maps, graphs, pictures, out of all these different sources and materials and sort of paint a picture for the commander to make decisions, either operationally, like things that are, ha- are happening on a 24, 48, 72-hour time frame, or much more broadly, like strategically, you know, what's going on in the whole a- area of operations over an extended period of time, what's been happening historically, and sort of educate or inform uh, a commanding officer or, you know, staff officer. So that doesn't quite fit into the what people typically think of in the military as in the, like you're ordered to do X and you do you do X and or else you get in trouble, right? You know, our, our job is essentially to um, challenge officers even sometimes. So, so you're giving them information on what areas are safe, what might be dangerous, These, this group or this individual might be a threat, they shouldn't be a threat, that kind of information? Or, you know, if we don't have that information, you know, what what we need um, in order to obtain that information. So, you know, we can also sort of provide feedback on, you know, where, where we need additional intelligence uh, surveillance and reconnaissance support. Were you looking at like videos of battles and you know searches and air attacks and that kind of thing? 
Sure. I mean, it was every, I mean, we were, we were in an operations center. So uh, there were three screens in the operations center, which was a separate part of the facility, but it was like the main part was like this big room, almost like uh, if you, you know, if you think of NASA during a space launch, it's very similar. Like you'd have three big, massive screens and everybody's at their workstations. Um, and yeah, there was a constant feed of video information, battlefield data on the ground, uh, radio traffic, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we had access to all of this and it was flooding in constantly. And there's also a lot of historical information from that, you know, sort of unfinished business was sort of everywhere because, you know, units came and went o- only after 12 month sort of cycles. What's interesting here is that, you know, you went to Iraq believing in the mission, wanting to help and make a difference. And then within, you know, I guess, what, a year or so, you were so troubled and disillusioned by what you saw that you were prepared to undertake this really risky thing of providing all kinds of documents, um, you know, to WikiLeaks because you felt – there well, was I mean, a story I, that, yeah. I'm going to stop you there. Because okay, I help think, us understand I, this. Yeah. I think what was bothering me was I had years, you know, I had years of training and years of sort of believing in something. Um, but I, I did not know how different the way the war had been portrayed in this time frame compared to what I was seeing on the ground. And I wanted that discrepancy to be addressed somehow. And so it, and it wasn't like an instant. It wasn't like, a oh, this happened. And then I, I did this. And so what I want really wanted was I really thought, you know, the Washington Post would would really do this. And so I became sort of obsessed with this notion of, and, you know, whenever I wrote that, that file, readme.txt, I sort of imagined a, a sort of, you know, Woodward and Bernstein kind of article, you know, like uh, I, I had a sort of uh, kind of cartoonish view of sort of like, you know, the how, how the media would, 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 would treat this. Um, and uh, when I went on leave from Iraq, by that time, the discrepancy and the sort of weight of the job and the fact that, um, you know, it didn't matter, it became clear after several sort of incidents that happened, it became clear that, uh, you know, it didn't matter how good at my job it was, or, or how hard I tried, or how much work I did, Not, nothing was going to fundamentally change in that direction of, of, of the war at that time. Right. No, I, I, I know that when you decided to, to try to disclose this information, you first tried to get to really established news organizations, and that didn't work. But what I really want to understand is how your thinking changed. I mean, I guess the narrative of the war that the government was presenting was, look, we're there, we're trying to build democracy, establish the rule of law. If, you know, if we engage in battle, it's with people who were trying to undermine that. You write that when you got around to wanting to reveal information, you said, I wanted the world to understand the seeing the matrix feeling I had been experiencing. What were some of the things you had seen that just convinced you that this was a very different picture that people need to understand. I think that the most, and it's very dif- difficult for me to describe this. Um, you know, my, my job, essentially, sort of doing a data analysis was to was to do was to do something called predictive analysis, right? And uh, one of the most troubling things that I encountered was this notion that it wasn't just the enemy that was predictable, right? Our actions, if you fed the data into the machine, um, you could predict our behavior. 
And then the reaction, the secondary reaction, the second and third order effects of that. And it painted this picture of a, of a feedback loop where it was pretty clear that um, our reactions to the actions were causing you know, things to get progressively worse, right? So we would just be sort of spinning our wheels more and more, you know, sort of like, um, you know, if you're, if you're stuck in a ditch and you're, you, you, you run the engine and you try to go faster, but you end up digging deeper, that was what was happening. And I kept seeing this again and again. And, you know, it was, it was very clear that, um, that the approaches of counterinsurgency warfare um, were extremely self-destructive. Yeah, you write it at one point, it, it was we, meaning the American troops, who are actually creating the chaos a lot of times in neighborhoods and engendering and, and more violence. You know, you tell a story of a joint special operations task force that was wanted to take out a high-value target and that Correct. you played a role in kind of doing the research on this person that they needed to take out, giving assembling all this information. Tell us what happened. So, uh, yeah, so I— um I spent a lot of time on this threat group, this particular threat group, and I produced uh, a lot of updated work. Um, you know, we, we sort of had been watching this for a while, um, since at least the mid-2000s. Um, and so I, I managed to update the, the, the targeting packets, as they're called. And I uh, and finally, I, uh, um, you know, and then I like sort of had a certified finalized packet. And, uh, and it was uh, like a little bit on the back burner. Um, uh, at this time, so we were focused on something else, and uh, I guess uh, CJ Sodaf, um, which is the Combined Joint Operations Task Force uh, for or Special Operations Task Force, um, they uh, while I was at lunch, my lunch, or really, um, you know, night midnight chow, um, in that forty-five minute period, um, you know, CJ Sodaf had, had announced that they were uh, conducting an operation in our AO. Um, they're not from our area of operations. Um, and so we went to, um, and then while I was, uh, all of this transpired with me completely unaware. Um, and it wasn't until I got back that, you know, the mission was already happening, right? They were already deployed to, they had used an old target packet from 2007. Not the new material you had assembled. The, exactly. The, the, it was out of date stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, they were already on the ground and already conducting this operation. And it was, a, it was a disaster. Uh, you know, there, there were, um, they had killed people. Um, they had killed, you know, animals, uh, pets and, uh, and not found anything. Um, they had faced resistance. I mean, obviously, you know, and this is a sort of psychological thing, right? You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, well, well, why do they, why, why were they killing people who were fighting back? It's like, well, people are just invading their home, right? You know, so, and it's not uncommon to have, you know, a bit like Texas, it's not uncommon for Iraqis to have, you know, one, one sort of firearm or whatever. So it just became this, this bloody, ugly mess. And they left, you know, they, 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 it was, uh, it was a dry hole, which is the term that we use, um, you know, when we, when, whenever uh, a, a mission doesn't find anything or is unsuccessful. And so they left the dry hole and um, returned back to wherever they went, went, went off to next, you know, because they, I think they were mostly based uh, outside of Iraq. So this, this group of highly trained soldiers were going in to get this supposedly high-value target, this dangerous person. They had the wrong address because they used out-of-date information and just tore up a neighborhood, killed people and animals, and left pain, resentment towards the United States in their wake, right? 
Right. And all of this happened just because of, you know, I, you know, like I would, I like if I had been there and I, if, I feel really bad because, you know, and I reflect on this more than anything else, probably from that time period, which is, you know, if I had, if I hadn't, if I hadn't, you know, gone to lunch, if I had just stayed at my desk, maybe, you know, it would have tra- tra- transpired differently. Right. Right. But you prepared the right information. They just, for some reason, looked in the wrong file. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I wasn't there. I wasn't at my desk. So, you know, if I had if I had gotten the announcement, you know, then I would have been able to go to the operations center and say, hey, you know, like it's 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 this place. It's slightly it was wasn't even that far. It was maybe, you know, the equivalent of two city blocks difference. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with Chelsea Manning. Her new memoir is titled Readme.txt. We'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. Our guest is Chelsea Manning, who served seven years in prison for leaking classified military and diplomatic documents when she was an Army intelligence analyst in Iraq. Manning announced her gender identity as a woman after her conviction in 2013 and began to transition. She's written a book about her experience. It's titled Readme.txt, a memoir. Um, so you decided you needed to share this information, and you had an awful lot of it. Uh, how... not, not as much as I had access to, however. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's one of the things I want to talk about is the decisions you made to, on what to release. Um, how secure was all this information anyway? Um, so this is not intelligence information. So it's a different category of information, M- much of it um, either um, classified at the secret level or below. And, you know, I, while I can't get into the, the, the specifics of the, the contents of it, uh, even, at, even to this day, um, you know, uh, that this kind of information is, you know, it, it's not intelligence information, it's historical data, it's what happened, right? It's the, the sort of what led up to the events that transpired, and on the broader scope, not just the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but what was transpiring on the sort of diplomatic front as well in, in the war on terror, specifically with the war on terror. Because all of this information is, you know, has to do with Iraq, Afghanistan, supporting Iraq and Afghanistan, and the sort of expansion of that and sort of the, the broader context of that. And so the, the scale of this is, I think, significant, but also the, the uh, scope of it is very narrow. You know, I'm wondering, when, when you undertook this, what did you think the risks were if you were caught? So nobody ever gone to prison for this before. Um, that wasn't even on my radar at the time. And I'm a, I'm an inte- I was an intelligence analyst, so my, my future opportunities were very broad and very wide. Um, you very mean within lucrative. the military or without? I mean- within the military and as a contra- as a, potentially as a contractor or in other, for other companies and things. It's a very lucrative um, it opens a lot of doors and it's very lucrative. And I thought I was throwing that away. I thought I was going to lose my job. I thought I was going to have my career tainted. I thought I was going to lose my lose my security clearance, um, be potentially be discharged, you know, with a with a sort of a you know a, a less than honorable discharge, and uh, and basically throw my uh, any future opportunities for a future career away. And uh, if if you and, were caught, you mean, yeah, yeah. yes. And so did you think the, did you think you would be caught? I mean, I, I I had a I had a notion at some point like where you know uh, I I recognized that there was enough sort of forensic trail to at least identify the office that it came from, 
and uh, and I figured that um, I would have been in a, a round of maybe a dozen or so potential suspects, and uh, and I felt very uncomfortable with this because obviously I didn't want my my colleagues to get in any kind of hot water either. You uploaded some other stuff before you actually were found out. I mean, the, the, a very famous video of a helicopter attack in Iraq which in which some civilians were killed. It came to be known as the collateral murder tape and then some, some diplomatic stuff. Um, but you were arrested and it would take three years before you had your day in court at a military court-martial. And you spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. I mean, your treatment was condemned by lawyers and eventually by a report by a United Nations official. You were first taken to Kuwait and kept in a cage, literally a cage, right, for 59 days? Yes. uh, It was a metal, sort of metal mesh box, like stainless steel container uh, in a tent with uh, very little lighting. There were two air conditioners. One was always broken. And it was I, I remember I remember very distinctly that there was this that there was this little uh, there was this little sort of um, sign in, inside of it that said built in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I just I'll never forget that. <laughs> it's just it was the only thing I could see every day. Well, what did living in that cage do to your mental state? Uh, I deteriorated and I deteriorated very quickly. I, I don't re- actually remember a whole lot. Um, I definitely don't remember a full 59 days. It's very vague. It's very fuzzy. You know, I, I just remember being hot, being sweaty, being very confused and, and really started to feel like, you know, like I, I had lost touch with the rest of the world and, uh, and that I had truly been forgotten about. It's at, at different points in that, in that time period. I remember having the feeling like, oh, this is, I, I am dead. I am like, I have already died. After that, you were taken to the brig in Quantico, Virginia, right? Again, kept in isolation. You write that the guards wouldn't even let you exercise in your cell. If you started doing sit-ups or other things, they would they would stop you. And then you eventually are transferred to uh, a military jail at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And, and right. you, you've got a civilian lawyer, and eventually he made a priority of getting you out of solitary confinement. And you were eventually joined the general population there. After so much time in isolation, what was it like adjusting to not having those restrictions? Right. So, you know, solitary confinement is a very, um, it's a very strange experience, um, you know, because like there's not there's not really anything to talk about like you know um, I you know and I and I and I while I get into it a little bit in the book there's just not a lot going on um, and then obviously you have uh, sort of a, a stimulus overload because having this access to so little stimulus in solitary confinement um, you know every you know you can hear a whisper from across the other side of the building you can hear footsteps you can tell a person who a person is based on their footfall. You can hear drips in the pipes. You just like become, you, there's this super heightened awareness of everything. And uh, the second that you are exposed to sort of stimulus again, like seeing the sun and feeling the air and talking to people and having conversations with, with multiple people was very overwhelming. It took me several months to adjust. And um, and the army jail therapist uh, walked me through sort of and was took a lot of care. Um, Dr. Galloway uh, took a lot of care in providing me the, the, the sort of help and support that I needed to readjust and 
become functional as a human again. I mean, I really, I, I, you know, I really, I became somebody who was unable to do anything apart from just say, uh, yes, yes, uh, yes, sergeant, or yes, drill sergeant, or whatever. Like, it was very, it was very rote memory, military bearing kind of that I leaned on and depended on in that time frame. Let me just reintroduce you. We are speaking with Chelsea Manning. Her new memoir is titled Readme.txt. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. From hiking summits to running errands, backcountry skiing to couch surfing, Smartwool base layers are everything you need to go anywhere. They make versatile merino wool base layers that offer all-day comfort for all your adventures. They're the first layer you'll want to put on and the last layer you'll want to take off. Enjoy 15% off your first order and find the right base layer for you at smartwool.com. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with Chelsea Manning. She served seven years in prison for leaking classified military and diplomatic documents when she was an Army intelligence analyst in Iraq. Her sentence was commuted by President Obama in 2017. You know, I want to address the contention of the government and some others that your disclosures harmed the United States and its allies or its sources in Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, I think it's important to take that question seriously. Generally, what's what's your view of this? So I think that, uh, you know, the, one of the, the most confusing things that gets brought up for me um, is the notion that, um, you know, oh, there were, there there is this allegation that just sort of swirls still to this day, mostly from journalists who ask questions about this time frame who ask about um, uh, redactions and names of sources, for, especially in context of Afghanistan. But uh, we actually went through a court-martial and we went through the process of going through sort of the evidence. And, you know, we asked the government, obviously, you know, for them to back up their claims. And, you know, it, it appears that this was a mistake on the Department of Defense's uh, part that they 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 reviewed large, larger tranches of information as they as, as they as that that's their language for it you know that i had access to not necessarily things that i that were actually published uh that would have had this information because it's a it's a different category of information um so i think that this uh oh they they assumed that everything you had access to was now available right uh and therefore sources would have been exposed uh, i see right and so much of the trial was about uh well you know this could have caused harm this could have caused damage this could have it was a lot of hypotheticals right and you know and i i don't disagree if 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 those if if that particular category of information had been released it would have been you know it, it could have been very damaging um but uh you know it, it's just it's it's i find it i find it very curious that uh um, you know, because they, they, they released this allegation, I think, in 2010. But by the time we got th- through the, the sort of um, the evidence uh, review phase of the trial, their, their claims just weren't there. And they sort of uh, stepped back a little bit on their claims, at least in the court process. You wrote that, that what you did was a selective disclosure, that there was a lot you saw and had access to that you would never reveal and still wouldn't. Um, and, and on the, the, the file that you provided um, when you sent this stuff, there was a readme file uh, that explained the material a bit, and you wrote, it's already been sanitized of any source-identifying information. I assume that that was sanitized by the military. I mean, you didn't personally read hundreds of thousands of documents, right? Are are you generally um, 
comfortable with the way WikiLeaks handled this material? Uh, well, it was published. Like that's that was my goal. Um, it was uh, I didn't have a lot of time. I didn't have a lot of you know ability. I didn't have a lot of options. Um, and it very narrowly didn't happen at all um, because of just sort of uh, logistical constraints and difficulties that I had. So like my 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 goal was to have it published. And uh, obviously, the New York Times, the Guardian, Le Monde, Opaie, like a lot of different outlets and uh, and and news organizations uh, uh, took this and handled it uh, well and published it. And, you know, I feel very comfortable with how this how, how this happened. Yes. So you were arrested in 2010. It took what? Three years to bring your case to trial nearly, I guess. Um, it was a long time. Um, and I will just say to, to, to listeners, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in the book about the preparation for the trial and, and the kinds of charges that, they, that the government chose to include. And we can't cover all, all of that here. But you do tell us that, you know, that there were plea negotiations. I mean, you and your civilian attorney kind of considered this. How close did you come to a, a plea agreement? Uh, well, basically, the government made it impossible. You know, they just sort of one of the most frustrating things of the plea agreement process was um, that they essentially wanted me to perjure myself. Yes, explain that. Yeah. So the government kept on trying to get me to plea to things that I didn't do. And we said, Oh, well, you know, okay, like, or or thing or and more specifically things that never happened, right? They wanted me to add these things that they call uh, uh, a stipulation of facts, which is essentially a, a document that says that both parties agree that these are factual, that these were facts, and they wanted me to lie, and I just I couldn't I couldn't do that, and so we it was impossible for us to to you know even though you know I obviously did the disclosures and I wanted to take responsibility and we wanted to sort of narrow the 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 scope of the damage you know for you know like because you know i definitely never imagined i'd be facing you know life without parole um you know uh as a as a possibility you know and, and trying to negotiate with them was very difficult because they just would not give up on trying to get me to perjure myself the trial was long government presented 80 witnesses and a lot of it was closed to the public and the press is that right to this day yeah well, why was that and what was the impact, do you think? Uh, well, uh, I can't say. <laughs> you can't say why. You know, there, there, there were security issues that caused them to, to make it. A, right. A, a there, there, these are the, 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 the government. Uh, the government uh, tried as much as possible to. Um, uh, they, the, uh, the government wanted the entire court martial to be behind closed doors. They repeatedly argued that this needed to be a, an entirely secret court martial. By this point, you 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 had access to media stuff. You weren't isolated. What do you what impact do you think that the so much of the trial being closed had on the media coverage? Well, it was it was always funny because like the things that ended up being uh, being brought up in court were always favorable to the government, and all of the things that were favorable to the defense were in closed court martial. So it was just very, you know, like it was it was it was like a, oh this is a one okay you're only getting a one side of a story here uh, essentially is how I felt. And yeah, I think that the world would greatly benefit from having access to the closed testimony. That's my opinion. Um, but, you know, again, I'm, you know, I'm a, I live in the U.S. and I, and I, all of this would happen all over again if I, if I, if I talked about what happened in the closed sessions. You know, the, uh, the judge found you guilty on 17 of 22 charges, right? Um, 
then there is the sentencing hearing at which it'll be decided what the sentence is. And, you know, a lot of factors come in here. And your attorney urged you to apologize to the government for the damage you had done. Um, what was your opinion of that? Um, you know, it, it, it was uh, a bit frustrating because uh, I, I had wanted to write uh, my own sort of statement, um, which was a little bit more defiant. Because um, you didn't feel like you had caused damage, Well, right? I mean, certainly, I mean, like, the, the our, our entire argument was that we hadn't caused damage, you know, which I, I, I feel was borne out in the evidence and in the testimony presented. And, you know, it was just, it was, just, it was, just, it was a very strange, it was, it was a very strange thing. But, you know, my, my lawyers kept on reassuring me. They kept on saying, oh, well, this is pro forma. This is how it's supposed to be. It was a very strange part of the process because it was like the one point in which, you know, my lawyers and I sort of had a very strong disagreement about sort of the presentation of this. Like I wanted, you know, and they they told me that the judge would view me very harshly if I didn't go through this process and that it would it would risk me getting a longer sentence. And I didn't necessarily care all that much about, you know, the length of sentence at that point since it didn't seem to matter all that much. So it just it was a very uncomfortable and very frustrating part of the, the court-martial process. Yeah, well, I've covered a lot of trials, and I know the general feeling is that a judge in a, in a sentencing hearing like that, they'll have in mind what they think they're going to oppose, and one of the things will be, did the defendant admit and take responsibility for their crimes? And if they don't, then there's X years that are going to go on. I imagine that's what your, your attorney was thinking. I'm going to read the statement that you actually did give, if you don't mind. I, I well, I you know, I, it's just that uh, just that I, you know, I, I didn't write I didn't write the statement. I didn't. I just sort of read it on a piece of paper, and you know, it it's it, it it was it was the oddest part of this entire process, right? You know, which was, you know, because I, I wanted to say what I eventually wrote in my in in the letter that I wrote to Obama in 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 20. 16, right? You know, for the commutation, which was, you know, like I accept respond, I, f- I fully accept responsibility for this. And, uh, and I'm willing to t- accept any, any punishment or any penalty whatsoever. And, you know, I think that they had sort of ethical, I think my lawyers sort of had an ethical obligation to sort of, you know, insist that I, that I read the statement that I didn't write, by the way. You were prepared to accept responsibility, but not admit causing damage. Um, right. So, so what your statement finally did say, I'm sorry that my actions hurt people. I'm sorry I hurt the United States. I look back at my decisions and wonder how on earth could I, a junior analyst, possibly believe I could change the world for the better over the decisions of those with proper authority. You quote that statement in the book, and then you say you think it's still that, that it hurt you. Oh yeah, I think it hurt. I think it hurt our court martial. I think uh, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't beneficial to us because it. It. It wanted. It. You know, just wasn't a very. It wasn't very human. It wasn't very passionate. It wasn't uh, the way I felt. Um, you know, because like you know, I do. I do feel like. You know, I, obviously, if I if I'm accused of something, then you know, you know that I did, then I will take a responsibility for it. And I'm a very I don't I don't I don't spend too much time worrying about the past. But yeah, I, I feel like I feel like it hurt me in the media as well because it was like it's like well you know like you you put on this big show and then you you basically say the opposite. It was just very it was very frustrating and very confusing and uh, it was a it was it was a very uncomfortable moment for me in particular. 
Let me take a let me reintroduce you. We're going to take another break here. We are speaking with Chelsea Manning. Her new memoir is titled Readme.txt. We'll continue our conversation after this short break. This is Fresh Air. You know, you write that when when the trial was over, your attorney wept and said he'd advised you to trust the system that had now given you a 35-year sentence. You said it was okay. You now had a, a finite number of years you could Yeah, I had down. numbers. I had numbers. That was the that was the language we we use in prison. Yeah, by this time I had spent three and a half I had spent over three and a half years in prison. Uh and, you know, I was pretty was pretty much on my way to institutionalization at this point. So imagining being out of prison was very difficult and uh you know, I was I was quite comfortable, you know, with uh with sort of the outcome at that point because it's like I didn't it was it was a number that I could count down. Um, and uh, I think that um, my focus shifted to quality of life as opposed to um, as opposed to just trying to like, you know, like focus too much on, oh, my life is over. Oh, you know, like it was just like how. All right. Well, how can I better myself? How can I, you know, learn? How can I expand? How can I grow as a human, because I gotta, you know, I gotta make, I gotta make the best that I can with what I got. I mean, I love this moment where you're 2017. You're, you're you, you, you see on television. Nobody tells you. You're called away out of your cell, and then you see right. on a television set, Manning sentence commuted by the president. What a surreal moment. I didn't believe it. It wasn't even surreal. Like it was just like, nah. This is this is like I'm like somebody happening. was playing a gag on you with a TV or something, or you just you just couldn't conceive of it. No, yeah, you know, you know, I, I've had, I've had um, throughout my life, I've had I've had good things, uh, just you know, sort of be promised and then have the rug pulled out under from underneath me so many times. I'm just very I'm very distrustful of good things happening without a without an asterisk or a caveat. You know you. You mentioned in the book that you tried to kill yourself several times, um, all of them when you were in custody, in prison or in solitary confinement. Um, I wonder how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, you know, uh, I finally got this book done. I finally it's – it's been a lengthy process to try to get this book written and, and, and released. Um, the publication review process uh, took some time as well. Um, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Um, you know, I have – uh, I've been doing uh, consulting, um, so I work as a security consultant. Uh, I was doing Twitch streaming during the the most of the pandemic, uh, so I've been uh, trying to get into the uh, video gaming, the world of video gaming, and uh, and and doing interactive sort of um, you know content based streaming. Um, I have been you know speaking. I go around the country. I go to universities all over the country, and I and I speak on uh, more current issues like uh, artificial intelligence, the use and abuse of data science, um, the risks of uh, data science in, in different fields. Um, I talk on security issues. You know, I, I, I feel like uh, my career is is growing finally, um, you know, after a couple hiccups. Uh, and yeah, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that, uh, that I can, you know, start to settle down. And, you know, I, this is, this is I, I have lived in the apartment that I live in now for the longest period of time than I have ever sat still in my entire life. So apart from prison, so um, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, well, and, and my child at home, obviously. Um, but as an adult, uh, I you know I've been living in in Brooklyn, and uh, I've been sort of 
figuring things out, you know. I'm trying to get my credit report to look a little little shinier, that kind of thing. One more personal question here. I mean, you, you, uh, you're kind of a celebrity now. I mean, there's occasionally reporting about who you date. Um, I won't ask you about it. I know you don't like to talk about that stuff. Yeah, my dating life is private. And, <laughs> That's uh, fine. But I'm wondering, are you recognized on the street? Um, absolutely. I, what do people say to you? Uh, I, you know, people are mostly, I mean, America has, America in particular has, has a celebrity obsession, I think. They, they want to take a selfie. They want to, they want to chat with you about, they, they want to tell you their life story, you know, which is, which is lovely, you know, to hear the first, you know, thousand times. Um, the warmth of people is always, always comes through, which is always, uh, you know, something that, that's fascinating. Um, I often get asked, especially by older by older people in jur- and and journal like more traditional journalist outlets, like, "Oh, do you do you, do you face any hostility?" It's like, no, I don't face hostility. I face a lot. I face a lack of sort of um, boundaries uh, sometimes. Like, and I knew that and this isn't just in the United States. This is this is globally. Like, I was at a um, a gas station. I was at a petrol station and. Um, what is it? East. It was it was central Poland. I was on my way to you know do vol- some volunteer work at the Ukraine uh, Polish border, and uh, and I got recognized in like at a, like a petrol station in, in in Poland, and I was just like, gosh, like there's literally nowhere I can go. Well, Chelsea Manning, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Chelsea Manning's new book is Readme.txt, a memoir. On tomorrow's show, we talk with New Yorker staff writer Hua Xu about his new memoir. Xu writes about his relationship with a college friend, an Asian-American whose background and cultural tastes were quite different from his own, who was killed in a carjacking. The book is Stay True, a memoir. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Dave Davies.